Hi everyone, welcome to the Idiots Podcast, that's Infectious Disease Insight of Two Specialists. I'm James, that's Callum, and we're going to tell you everything you need to know about infectious disease. Callum, how are you doing? Particularly average. What are we talking about today? Today we are talking about gram-positive cocci, which are not staphylococci or streptococci. Soon may the ID team come to discontinue the Tazo Sun. One day when the CRP's done, we'll take our leave and go. So we've talked before about these um, two big super families of, of gram-positive cocci, and they really, for anybody who's not doing their infection training or infection exams, they're kind of all that you need to know. There are other gram-positive cocci families, or genuses, I suppose I should say, which are of import, and some of them do cause, have the potential to cause uh, severe disease. But in general, these as a heterogeneous group are variably pathogenic, I should say. Uh, and a lot of them uh, only cause uh, disease in immunocompromised hosts or if they've been given an opportunity to invade a previously sterile space uh, and make a colony for themselves. And as a result of this, they're actually a bit hard to talk about, aren't they? So we're, you know, usually we, when we're doing these microbe episodes, we talk about um, what they are, what they do, how they're classified, how to kill them. We can't really do that here uh, because the this is not one big group of organisms. They're, you know, they're gram positive and they're circular, and basically they're the similarities end, and they're they're all uh, genetically quite diverse. Uh, there's not really enough talk about for them to do individual episodes and mm. if we miss them out and then it'll be sad for them yeah uh, as would i yeah so this group of organisms will often first be identified in the laboratory as a gram positive coccus or cocci on microscopy and they'll be in chains or clusters and so that will immediately put you into the pattern of is this a staphylococcus in clusters or a streptococcus in uh, chains and that's probably where you come at it. And then later on on the line, you'll identify it as uh, a different organism. Uh, so you, you don't often, you know, get a gram scene and say immediately, oh, it's this. Uh, usually you, you'll look for the most common things and then work your way to the more unusual. And mm. these are the ones that you'll, you might get the more unusual. So just to list what we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about some organisms that look a bit like Staphylococcus and the grams so or Micrococcus and uh, Alleococcus. And some things that look a bit like streptococci, so leuconostoc, abiotrophia, aerococcus. And then there's also some organisms that we'll talk about briefly that are anaerobic gram-positive mm. cocci, um, which I guess we probably talk about anaerobes in a separate episode at some point because we usually lump them together. Okay, so we'll start with the stuff that is catalase positive and tends to go in clusters. So that's stuff that kind of looks a bit like it could be a staphylococcus. And there are two genesis to talk about here. Uh, one's micrococcus and the other's alloyococcus. And you might be thinking, where did I get all these um, genesis from? Why have I selected these out of the hundreds of gram-positive cocci species? These are the ones that appear in the Oxford Handbook of Infectious Disease and Microbiology. And therefore, the ones that I wrote down uh, for the exam. So that's uh, where the list comes from. Let's start with micrococcus. I think it's fairly commonly uh, turns up in uh, in cultures, 
and the the species that really causes disease in humans is Micrococcus luteus. They're catalase positive, they grow in clusters. They're also oxidase positive, um, which helps with identification. And in particular, when they're growing in clusters, they tend to grow in tetrads. So they don't have this kind of bundle of grapes appearance that Staphorius does. There's very distinctively kind of four of them, and then they kind of branch off uh, from each other. You often find micrococci on clinical specimens, including blood cultures, as a contaminant. They're an organism that grow on the skin a bit like some staphylococci and some of the streptococci. That's usually where you find them. Uh, they're causing clinical infection is often in the context of prosthetic material, so say a replaced hip um, or other joint. Other than that, you don't tend to see it causing much problems. Yeah. Um, the other catalyst-positive organism, Aloeococcus otidis, there are some schools of thought which think this might not actually be all that pathogenic. Uh, you see it in otitis media cultures, so ear swabs uh, will often return those, and certainly it's a commensal of the inner ear. Whether or not it actually causes active infection is, is debatable, uh, but if you feel like treating it, uh, you can treat it with penicillin. And that's basically all you need to know about it. Nice. So moving on to things that are more like streptococci, so they grow in chains and catalase negative. Yeah. Will we start with leuconostoc? Leuconostoc. Mm. Not entirely sure how we're meant to pronounce it. I think it's leuconostoc. Mm -hmm. Interesting aside, or maybe not that interesting, who knows? I think often in medicine, we pronounce things in a set way and then you go to a different, you know, health board or country and things are pronounced very differently. Yeah. <laughs> so clostridium uh, or clostridioides, as it's now called, difficile or is it difficile? Who knows? I mean, I think that's a, maybe quite a universal thing with Latin pronunciations because some debate about whether we actually know how the Romans used Latin and how they pronounced it. Yeah, or how it was pronounced. Yeah, definitely. Uh, but in medicine, so if that maybe that can be our little disclaimer that if you're listening and you, you know how it's meant to be pronounced and we're not pronouncing it right, then we're definitely pronouncing it right for our local setting. And if you're listening even, from our local absolutely. setting... Even though both of us are pronouncing it differently. Yes, oh, yes, definitely. And if, if you're listening from the local setting and we're pronouncing it wrong, um, then it's because we've worked somewhere else. That's what it is. Mm. Yeah, so Leuconostoc? So Leuconostoc is an organism which is found quite ubiquitously in environments, plants, veg, dairy. Although when we say it's been found in these places, that's just where people have published on the internet and, and, and you know papers about where they found it. So it probably is more widely spread than that. And it can be a cause of uh, skin, soft tissue, dental abscess infections, bloodstream infections, meningitis. It's quite infrequently found in clinical specimens. Mm. Um, it's often something that, that has been grown and, you know, you think is going to be some sort of uh, streptococcus and then, you know, it turns out to be leuconostoc. So, well, I mean, I guess that's true of everything we're about to talk about, though, Cal. Yes, that's true. Yeah. Interestingly, uh, leuconostoc is intrinsically vancomycin resistant. So vancomycin acts at the peptidoglycan terminus, 
at the site of two consecutive alanine amino acid residues. Leuconostock doesn't have this. It's got alanine and then lactate. And so that means that vancomycin can bind to it. Uh, but luckily enough, penicillin will kill it uh, just fine. So if you do encounter a Leuconostock sample uh, and you want to kill it in your patient, again, penicillin will do fine. Uh, abiotrophia. So these were... Abiotrophia. Uh, fine. <laughs> I don't know. Fine. That's how I say it. All right, fine. Uh, abiotrophia or abiotrophia, uh, formerly called the nutritionally variant strept cocci. Why were they called this? Well, they look like strept cocci on the agar plate, but interestingly, these organisms need pyridoxine and thiol to grow properly. And so they... Uh, almost uh, parasitize other colonies in order to acquire that. It's not intrinsically there in the agar plate. So they'll grow near, say, Staph aureus, or they'll grow in a special media that has pyridoxine and thiol integrated into it. And for a while, they were just called nutritionally variant streptococci. Then various genetic studies revealed them to be uh, not particularly similar to strep at all. And so they were reclassified into the genus Abiotrophia. There's two species defectiva and adiacens. They are normally found in the upper respiratory tract and GI tract and the urogenital tract as well. Their main thing is that they can kind of cause endocarditis in humans and that they can occasionally be hard to ID with the Molditov. They're also hard, hard to ID um, on, uh, on microscopy as well, although they're normally gram-positive, they can actually be gram-variable and they can actually be a bit pleomorphic depending on how they've been grown. Pleomorphic um, just means that they have different shapes. So they mm. can be um, coca- coccoid or they can be bacilliform. And uh, just popping in a case, so recently, well, recently, a couple of months ago, we had a case of a patient who had symptoms of infective endocarditis and had lots of blood cultures and we saw gram-positive bacilli in one gram stain, and then we saw some uh, gram-positive cocci in another, and then sometimes the bacilli looked a little bit gram-negative, and it was quite hard to unpick. Um, and then the patient turned out to have abiotrophia. Uh, I think it was adiacens, uh, mm. infective endocarditis. Interesting. And what did you use to treat it? I think they had a cephalosporin in basin. Yeah. So the the all the nutritionally variant streps they're sensitive to your normal gram positive killing uh, drug classes. So penicillins, cephalosporins, vancomycin, and also gentamicin, which is interesting because normally streptococci are considered to be resistant to gentamicin as opposed to say staphylococcus. Aerococcus, Callum. Aerococcus. This is another another organism that's found quite widely within the environment. It's generally not that pathogenic. It can cause opportunistic infections uh, in patients who've got altered immune system. Uh, One genus, Aerococcus urinae, can cause urinary tract infections. I guess that's probably the one you come across the most often. Mm. Uh, In terms of laboratory identification, they're catalase negative, just like other, you know, it's a bit like streptococci in that sense. On the plate, it can mimic a Verdun strep, and they tend to appear in small clusters. Hmm. And then the last kind of strappy looking thing uh, would be pediococcus. And again, we're now getting into kind of real small print stuff. Pediococcus grows on us and humans on the skin, I think. 
but also has been cultured from plants previously. It causes opportunistic infections. It can rarely cause endocarditis. Again, it looks like uh, viridan streptococci when you look at it. What would you use to treat it? You could use penicillin and you could use daptomycin. Again, it is vancomycin resistant, although this time I'm, I'm unsure about the, uh, the mechanism of that. And then other big group that we should mention in passing really uh, are the anaerobes. These organisms, they may occasionally pop up in blood cultures because they've been uh, identified to species level through automated methods. A lot of the time, if they're grown in other fluids, they'll be identified at anaerobe level and that'll be the end of the matter. They'll uh, have a metronizal disc put on the agar plate, they're sensitive, and that'll be what's recommended to, to use against them. These, you might think, where, where are these and what do they do? Well, they normally colonize the upper respiratory tract, the skin, the vagina, the mouth, uh, the upper GI tract. And they're quite indolent normally, but they can cause uh, chest infections and aspiration pneumonias. They can be involved in abscesses as well, but usually alongside something else like a staph or a strep and bloodstream infections if it gets, if it gets that deep. And what would you use to kill them? Well, number one is metronidazole. Uh, but usually they're also sensitive to penicillins, and a lot of them are also sensitive to vancomycin too. So that's gone through our list of organisms that we wanted to highlight. Yeah. I suppose the, only, the other thing I want to uh, say at the end is to give people a, a list of the vancomycin-resistant gram-positive cocci, because I think that's a reasonably important list to have, possibly more for the infection specialist than the, than the F1 on the ward. The, the group is fairly heterogeneous, but if you do encounter them, uh, it's important to know that if you're you know, using vancomycin that it won't work. And so that would be Staph hemolyticus, one of the coagulase negative staphs we've talked about uh, before, Entrococcus, the entrococci, sorry, that possess the van C gene. Uh, so that would be Entrococcus gallinarum and Entrococcus cassiliflavus, Leuconostoc, which we've mentioned in this podcast, and Pediococcus, again, which we've mentioned here. So my mnemonic for this is HELP. That's hemolyticus, as in staph hemolyticus, Entrococci, Leuconostoc, and Pediococcus in that order. And just for ultra-completion, the vancomycin-resistant gram-positive bacilli are nocardia and lactobacillus, which I do not have a mnemonic for because that's only two letters. Now, I think it's important to say intrinsically vancomycin-resistant. Yeah. So, I mean, anything could really acquire resistance, can't it? But yeah. So the most common thing that we'll see that's vancomycin-resistant as a gram-positive cocci is going to be intracocci, but not generally Gallinarum castle flavus, because those aren't the most common ones. Most commonly we see Entrococcus fecium, uh, which acquires a van A gene and becomes vancomycin resistant Entrococci, which we usually mm. lump in together because it's mostly an infection control issue uh, that we were talking about that for. So we're talking about the intrinsically vancomycin resistant uh, gram-positive cocci. And if you see one of those, you want to get help um, with a different antibiotic. They don't yeah. necessarily mean that they're particularly difficult to treat, but I think often the case you're in is that you've got a patient and you think they've got a gram-positive infection, so you start with vancomycin empirically because you know it'll cover pretty much most of the gram-positive cocci. 
Well, that's the that's the issue, I think, is that the you if you want to cover all gram positive cocci, you don't choose a beta lactam, you choose vancomycin because yeah. it kills all gram positive cocci. That's what it's known for. It doesn't have a spectrum against gram negatives, so it's got the reputation as being the the kill all drug for gram positive cocci. But these are the organisms where it won't work. Yeah, these are the ones that you should, as soon as you get the ID from the laboratory. You know, it's really the microbiologist that will know this and, and act on it. You know, you get yeah. a report through saying that it looks like we're growing, you know, leuconostoc. You'd be like, well, actually, maybe Vank wasn't the right option. Uh, so, yeah, it was Staphylococcus hemolyticus, Entrococci, uh, so Entrococcus gallinarum and Entrococcus cassiflavus, leuconostoc, and Pediococcus. And just for note at this point, our gram-positive bacilli, which are vancomycin-resistant, include erysipyrlophrix, lactobacilli, and nocardia. Hmm. And it's not really relevant to what we've been talking about, but I think for exams and just general awareness, it's useful to bump, lump those in because we use vancomycin as our sort of catch-all gram-positive cover. Okay. Okay, so that uh, takes us through gram-positive cocci that aren't staph and strep. Any questions or comments, suggestions, why don't you email idiotspodcasting at gmail.com. Apart from that, we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you next week.